Well, this morning, you know that we are looking forward to one of the most exciting times that take place in the church. We're looking forward to Easter. Today is Palm Sunday. That is, this is the day that we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem when he told the disciples to go and fetch for him a donkey, one that would be loaned to him, that he would ride this donkey into Jerusalem down from the Mount of Olives with the people, the crowds gathered around him shouting praises and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, praising him and recognizing him as a king coming in to Jerusalem. We celebrate this day because we know that in only a few short hours, things will change. We know that only in a few short days, the crowds will call for his death. Standing on a stage with Barabbas, a criminal next to him, when offered to either release Barabbas or Christ, the crowds would cry out, give us Jesus. We want him to be crucified. The authorities who were responsible with taking Christ's life ultimately would wrestle, some might even say wrestle, with the difficulty of not wanting to put this person to death because they find no guilt in him, but ultimately bowing to the demands of the crowds around them. Our text this Easter season does not come from the New Testament, but I promise it is a traditional message. It comes from the very words that we would hear Jesus cry out from upon the cross as He said, Father, Father, or rather, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? For many of us, this begs the question, what was it that Jesus Christ was proclaiming as He said, Father, why have You forsaken Me? Many have made the observation, and indeed, even the disciples saw that Jesus was making an allusion back to a psalm that, is, uh, that we believe was written by King David. Psalm 22. I'd ask you to prepare by turning to Psalm 22 in your Bibles this morning, for this is where our text will come. To understand exactly what Jesus was saying, I think first we must understand the quotation from which he was pulling it. Psalm 22, recorded by David, recounts the Christian, or rather the man of God, who is experiencing dire circumstances, rejection and even persecution, circumstances that would cause knees to buckle. We find David being pursued by his enemies, crying out to God, God, why me? Why would you forsake me? Why are we turning here this year? Why should we understand what Christ was saying while He was upon the cross? Well, first of all, I think the reason we should understand it is because we understand by seeing Christ on the cross what actually needed to take place for our salvation. It helps us to understand what gift we celebrate this time of year. And indeed, if you truly know what salvation brings, the life that we enjoy every day of our lives... Beyond that, we do not just want to understand the mysteries that were taking place behind the scenes in the crucifixion, in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, 
whatever those words mean. But we want to understand now in our lives, what are we saved from? This is where it hits home. It's not just some far-fetched idea that we would peer behind the veil, but that we would understand what our own salvation means for the Christian's life today. What does it mean for the man or the woman of God who cries out, I feel alone and forsaken? What is this feeling that we would be able to say that there is no loneliness in the Christian life? Because we are accompanied not just by a father who is all present, not just by a son who is preparing a place for us, but by a spirit who comforts our very hearts. With your Bibles open then, let us read from God's word. And before we read, let us prepare our hearts with prayer. Father in heaven, guide us this morning. Give us insight into your word that we might understand what was accomplished on our behalf. Give us understanding this morning that we might know why to praise you as we live our lives in dedication of your glory. Open the eyes of our heart, O Lord, that we might be able to behold the wondrous truths of your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Bible says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in your father's In our fathers, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
How beautiful is this psalm. We're breaking our study of this up as we go through the Easter season. And in your bulletin, you'll notice we're going through verse 20. To be honest with you, as I was preparing further, I'm not sure we'll make it much past verse 11. And so we may have to pick some up tonight. What we find in Psalm 22 is that as the psalmist is writing, as David is writing in his moment of crisis, he first turns to God with cries of being forsaken or being abandoned, being left alone, being isolated and without help, without comfort. He moves, though, to remember all of these things. He remembers the faithfulness of generations that have come before him. And indeed, this can be a comfort for many of us, the reality that the things that we are experiencing in life really is not the first time that somebody has gone through it before. I don't know about you, but that's a comfort to me. As I face the difficult circumstances that come with living in a fallen world, I remember, hey, people have been messed up way longer than just me getting here. I'm not the one that broke the system. It was broke before I showed up. And so our psalmist does the same in remembering that people trusted in God and that God not only in their past lives has been faithful to Him, but even in my immediate past life, I can remember God being faithful to me whenever I needed Him. It seems like this almost stirs something up inside of the psalmist, though, because remembering God's faithfulness I think in actual fact, while it can comfort us for a time, ends up agitating us even more as we realize that's great and well. Why can't you be faithful now when I need you? And then he comes back. And he says, what good is it for me to be angry? You're the only hope that I have. God, let me trust you. The psalm ends, beginning really in verse 20 and down through verse 31, the psalm ends with a proclamation not only of being faithful to God and pursuing Him, but in proclaiming Him for all those that would see. I want to walk through it a bit slower than that, but there you have it, a high-level view of Psalm 22. Now, let's consider the fact that this wasn't just David saying it, but that Jesus Christ himself from the cross declared, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't it interesting that when we tell the story of Jesus' birth, there was light at midnight. In fact, there was a star so bright that it lit up the sky. However, when we tell the story of his death, we must tell of darkness that came at noon. Douglas Webster's the first to make this observation. He says, There was brightness at midnight at the death of the Son of God. There was darkness at noon. After his betrayal, Jesus Christ was arrested. Betrayed by none other than his friend, his company. After he was arrested, he was tried before Ananias and Caiaphas, Herod and Pilate. He was denied by another friend, by Peter, and then he was mocked by the priest and the soldiers. Splitting, scourging, the crowd demanded his death. 
And all the while Christ fulfilled what was recorded in Isaiah 53 verse 7 when it told of the suffering servant. He who was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He carried his cross until Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry it for him to the city of Golgotha, the place of the skull. Here they crucified him. The evangelist writes, declining to dwell on the stripping that would have taken place, the clumsy hammering home of the nails or the wrenching of his limbs as the cross was hoisted and dropped into a hole in the ground. The authors of the New Testament could not dive into the details in this place above all. Rather, they satisfied themselves to say it was here that they crucified him. A gruesome and grisly way of dying. As a matter of fact, a way of execution that was perfected all the way back to the Babylonian Empire to bring about the maximum amount of suffering possible before the person would die. Even the excruciating pain could not silence Christ as he cried, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The soldiers indeed did take his garments and gambled over his clothes, directly fulfilling what we find in verse 18 of Psalm 22. Jesus commended his own mother to the care of his beloved disciple John. And his beloved disciple John, he commended to the care of his mother, saying, Woman, this is your son. He forgave from the cross the penitent criminal that was at his side, while the rulers sneered at him, shouting, He saved others, but he can't save himself. We hear the crowd sneering at him declaring the salvation of the penitent sinner, but unable to save himself. Just as our psalmist records in verse 8 of our text. He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Indeed, the words of those who sneered at Christ were true. In order for Jesus Christ to save others, he could not at the same time save himself. The cross was necessary. It was the salvation that he brought about the ability to save others. Their words were meant as an insult, but they were the truth. He chose to sacrifice himself in order to save the world. But what came about? We're told that Christ's crucifixion took place during the third hour of the day. If we translate that into modern terms, it would have been around nine o'clock in the morning that Christ was crucified. At the sixth hour, at high noon, darkness came over the whole land. The sun was literally covered in the middle of the day. And at the ninth hour, as the darkness receded, it was at this moment that we find Jesus crying out in a loud voice, saying in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We call this the cry of dereliction. Now, I thought I knew what dereliction means. 
And I found out that I don't. So I had to go look it up because I was trying to figure out how to explain dereliction. And um, I had to look it up. So dereliction, it's actually very simple. We all know what abandonment means. It turns out we've been using abandoned wrong. To abandon someone means that I did the act of abandoning. To be derelicted means that you were the one who was abandoned. When we call this the cry of Jesus Christ, the cry of dereliction, what we are saying is that he's crying out as the abandoned son. Abandoned, forsaken, withdrawn, and alone. But I must ask, does this mean that God the Father withdrew himself from the Son that he would suffer? Oh, this is troubling. It it stirs something up within me to consider that within the Holy Trinity, however this is working, that the Son of God was separated from the Father in such an extreme way that he was alone without the blessing of love and care. There's four views that ultimately come from looking at what Jesus said and and what does it mean. And I want to share them with you um, just because I'm not totally certain that I know what I'm saying. There's a great mystery to behold as we look at the fact that Jesus Christ was on the cross and whatever was taking place as he cried out to the Father, something was happening. But what does it mean? Some would say that Jesus was simply crying out in anger and unbelief and in despair. The assumption here is that Jesus Christ was surprised that what was taking place on the cross was happening to him. Here's where I have a problem with that view. That would mean that Jesus Christ was not all-knowing, wouldn't it? For him to be surprised by something would mean that he was caught off guard, or at the very least that he was mistaken in some way, perhaps believing that as long as he were faithful, that perhaps like Abraham and the prototype or the, the image that we would see of Abraham's sacrifice with his son Isaac, that God would provide a sacrifice, that he would be rescued, perhaps by angels descending from heaven to bring him up from the cross and from the most extremes of his suffering. But I just don't see that as really making a whole lot of sense. I believe Jesus knew what he was doing. I think he knew it all the while as he went to the cross. He knew that he was going to suffer. I think if he was abandoned, he knew he was going to be abandoned. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't mistaken. And so I would throw that view out. A second view, I think, ultimately tries to modify that and saying that maybe Christ wasn't completely surprised But having never experienced separation from the Father was not prepared for what he would experience. Christ had known all his life the covenant love of the Father and his promises, but now from the cross he's experiencing loneliness as he becomes sin without ever having sinned himself. That Christ was taken back by the reality that the comfort of the Father escaped him. And and this is why he cried out in agony. T.R. Glover writes, according to this view, that there is a grave distance between feeling and fact. 
You see, I actually like this view for one reason and one, one reason only. Oftentimes, I feel alone, isolated, unable to speak with anybody about my dilemmas. And I know that the reality is I, I do that to myself more often than not. But because of Christ, I'm never actually alone. I never ever have to experience such isolation and loneliness from the Father that I do not have Him to comfort me. If at all, if not anything, at least the blessings that come from fellowship with Him. While I might feel alone, there is a difference between a feeling and fact. I'm still not completely sold on this perspective, though. A third view takes a a totally different approach, all right? So let's say that Christ cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps Christ, well, we know that he was quoting from Psalm 22. Maybe he just didn't have the physical energy to get it all out. And maybe we should read then that as Christ is crying out in this way that He's actually alluding to all of Psalm 22 from the cross. That we should read this final proclamation that comes in the end as we make our posterity serve God, as we see Him in the coming generation and declaring His name. I'm actually quite a fan of this view. But it takes a little bit of a stretch to say that by citing verse 1 of Psalm 22, that Jesus Christ actually was trying to make reference to the end. It's my only problem with it. It's a little far-fetched for me. I don't know about you, but I tend to be a simple person. I like simple and straightforward answers. So let me offer for you a simple and straightforward explanation. That is to say that from the cross... Christ really was crying out in real dereliction. He was experiencing real abandonment. You see, Christ had no need to make a false utterance. He truly is abandoned by the Father in this moment. Up to this point, He was forsaken by man and knew the comforts and realities of the Father's love, but not right now. To become the substitution for sin, he experienced abandonment. He may have been able, as he said in John 16, 32, yet I am not alone for my father is with me. And all of his life, as he experienced persecution from religious authorities and civil authorities and those who did not know him and the conflicts that had ensued over generations and generations between different peoples. He may have been able to find comfort in the fact that his father loved him, but on the cross, he is alone. John Stott agrees with me and writes, So then, an actual and dreadful separation took place between the Father and the Son. It was voluntarily accepted by both the Father and the Son. It was due to our sins and their just reward. And Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, the God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse in Scripture which adequately described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled, namely, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
In fact, we can even see the logic in the fact that it was necessary for Christ to become spiritually forsaken by the Father because if Christ had died only in bodily death, it would have been an ineffectual unless his soul shared the punishment. He would have been the redeemer of bodies alone. Now, let me back up for just a second and admit that it is a fearful thing and it's even a dreadful concept to consider Christ bearing and actually becoming our sins. But this is not some far-fetched idea. It is a reality found in Scripture, namely 2 Corinthians 5.21. In the nature of God forsaking Christ, it may be a mystery. There is pain in the Godhead even to realize this. And there is pain in my heart to look upon it. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. While we read in 1 John verse chapter 1, verse 5, that there is no darkness in God, in him spiritual darkness came and made manifest as our sin covered the light of the sun's rays. It also covered the sunshine of the Father's face. To see Christ lonely, experiencing a loss of, dare I say, self-esteem, we find this very psalm, I am a worm despised by the people. Well, let's back up for just a second. In realizing this reality, I said that there are some promises that we can look to, not just in understanding what took place on the cross some 2,000 years ago, but also in recognizing what it means for the Christian today. The psalm wasn't originally written with Jesus' words. It was written from the cries of God's servant, giving credit to the psalmist, perhaps even the greatest psalmist of all Israel, King David. To understand what's being said in the psalm and how we can apply it to our lives, we must first look at it in the context that it is found in the Old Testament. We begin, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let me pause here for a moment and just point out that even in abandonment, the way that we reference God and that we speak to him is not in impersonal ways in saying, hey, you as we would speak to some stranger, but it is with the address, my God. It is a question. The cry of dereliction or the, the cry and the pain of loneliness do not come from a place of saying, what's up with this? It comes from a place of, why me? I've been your servant. I've been with you. I've been faithful to you. We've gone through stuff. And maybe that's a a little too dressed down to realize how reverently we approach God. But the reality, nonetheless, is the same. I've walked with you, God. Why are you letting me experience this suffering? Why are you so far from saving me that the words of my groaning do not come to you? Verse 2 says, My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. I don't think that David's the only person in the history of the world that has experienced such suffering anguish that he cried out to God, beseeching him to show up and do what he said he was going to do. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I know that I have. Crying out for God to show up when I needed him most and feeling like I was alone. 
As a matter of fact, we often speak of this moment in our Christian um, maturity as we're growing up as the dark cry of the night. When we've grown in spiritual maturity and we've begun to understand more and more about God and we are resolute in our faith, there comes a time when our faith just seems to be tested. When circumstances come up against us and we have to wait patiently for God. Loved ones, if you've not experienced this, I promise if you commit yourselves to growing in spiritual maturity, it will come for you. I know no one that I have considered spiritually mature that has not been able to understand the dark cry of the night. But we also know this, that we will never experience such isolation and abandonment such as that which was experienced by Christ himself. We are able to turn to God as verse 3, the psalmist does, saying, Yet you are wholly enthroned in the praises of Israel. That yet is important because it's not just that I have not found rest. It's that despite I have not found rest, God is still holy. He's still worthy of praise. He's still separated from praise. And it's in Him that our fathers have been able to trust. For generations upon generations, people who grew in their faith before me have been able to endure isolation, loneliness, even betrayal, even persecution. They have been able to experience all of this because God has been not only been faithful, but He's been holy and worthy of praises. I trust you, God, because I saw you deliver them as it's recorded in history. To you they cried and they were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. It's like almost like watching the stock market if you see a real consistent and safe stock or whatever it is, as it moves down, we're able to say, I'm just going to keep holding out because it always comes back up. That might be a bad illustration, but we see that even more in an amplified case in God's faithfulness. When situations look darker than they could possibly look in Israel's history, our fathers trusted in God and they were delivered because of their faith. Step it up. I can endure this a bit longer. Oh, because I see myself and while I cry out, why me? Why would I experience this? Why would I be rejected amongst my friends, amongst the people that loved me, amongst the people that cared for me and that I was supposed to be drawn to? I think loneliness has an impact on the way that we view ourselves. Being isolated and alone, I I think it's damaging to our self-esteem. Now, don't put that down in your notes anywhere. I'm coming up with that on my own. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's just what I've experienced in my short time on this earth. Loneliness doesn't make me feel very great about myself. I think I do understand what the psalmist is saying then in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. If Christ were teaching from the cross and quoting this, he truly viewed himself as the servant that came. God Almighty, enthroned in the glories of heaven, considered just for a moment the contrast here. 
You are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel, but I am a worm? Christ, who came to dwell in the flesh, who before he was incarnate on earth, was wrapped up in the heavenly places, praised and worshipped by the angels, now scorned by the least of men, calling, called a worm, despised by mankind. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. This is the same accusations that we see as Christ is being condemned here. Suffering can certainly damage our self-esteem. And even as we find in Isaiah 41, the prophet writes that we will find God telling Jacob, Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you. It is in recognition the lowliest state of men, how small we are, how short our time is on this earth, how quickly things come to pass, that we are able to actually recognize, for love's sake, who we are in the eyes of God. Who we are before the Almighty as He comes to rescue us. It was necessary that Christ would make himself so low that he would suffer in our place on the cross. He came for worms. His love is unmatched, unmeasured, ununderstandable, probably too far for us to even begin to record. But we find that even in persecution. We're able to turn to Him. Even in loneliness, we are even able to be comforted. As I said, I believe that Christ was suffering isolation and loneliness on the cross. Real forsakenment, real abandonment. As He cried, as the sun began to shine down again, I think we see what was concealed in darkness. Verses 9 through 11 are where we find affirmation and comfort. Yet you who are, yet you are he who took me from my, from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast up from, from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. wonder, in a moment of loneliness and abandonment, well, here, I'll give you, I think, an easy illustration of this. Some of you have been married, so you know what I'm talking about. Has the person you've loved, you just walked, have you ever been in a, a situation where the person that you loved you were able to walk away from them questioning whether or not they loved you. Well, this is something that I think happens to all of us at some point in our lives, that there's people that care for us. Maybe it's just friendships, and we walk away wondering, well, do they actually like me as much as they say that they do? That kind of self-doubt penetrates our thoughts and it corrupts relationships. It's all too common. When we're lonely and isolated, it's, it's all too common. The simple cure for a question such as that is to remind ourselves, 
well, how did we become friends in the first place? What made us get married in the first place? Did I coerce them into loving me to begin with? Or did they choose to love me? Did they love me first? How can I comfort myself and my insecurities? Can I simply look at where it all began? And certainly, when experiencing isolation from God in the quiet moments as we wait for Him, as our faith is built and strengthened, we can say that it was you who took me from the womb. That God took you from the womb. It was not as David was a shepherd wandering around in Israel that he was made king, but it was decided before the formation of the world that God would make him king over Israel, that Saul would need a replacement. All of these things would come to fruition. In fact, not just in the orchestrations of our life, but in the very salvation that brings us to know God. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. There's an emphasis here on the divine initiative that begins in salvation. And this is the comfort that we have in our salvation. Not that it came about by happenstance. Not that in my moment of loneliness or self-doubt or in experiencing dwindling or dwindling or a lack of the miraculous or whatever it is, I'm able to be comforted because I didn't wind up here by mistake. I didn't have to force myself into this room. I was welcomed with open arms. I didn't have to contrive some sort of situation that God would accept my plea to call Him Lord. Rather, it was He that made me trust Him. It was He that opened the eyes of my heart, that made me behold my own worm-like state, that I would be considered a son of God, grafted into His presence. So this would also be a comfort for Christ upon the cross. The uncreated one, the infinite, the almighty, the son of God, the lamb brought before the altar to be slain, forsaken by God, becoming the payment of sin, not just in bodily form, but in spiritual form. Even without you here, I know that you love me. Trusting in such covenant love to be able to endure the sacrifice that was made necessary by the sins of the world. For your sins, for my sins, for my sins yesterday and today and even tomorrow. Christ is made perfect in his faithfulness. This is the test that all Christians will face. This is the test that all Christians will be forced to endure because in these moments where our faith is tried, where loneliness is experienced, even though we have the comfort of the Spirit inside of us, as we turn and we ask God, why are you not here for me? It is so easily becomes a weapon that we turn against the Father. Our ponderings must be to dwell on the people, but must, must become to dwell on the mystery of God's love on the patience that he experienced on our behalf. Sometimes we say that we can trust God's promises to get through the pain that we are experiencing. But the reality is, if we're honest, and I think I'm sensitive enough to admit this, remembering God's faithfulness in the past can make us impatient in the present. It increases the pain of waiting for God. 
But we must also remember that in increasing the pain and facing temptation, as Hebrews 2.18 says, that it was by this that Christ suffered when He was tempted and He was able to help those who are tempted. Loneliness is perhaps the, perhaps the greatest temptation, more so than Jesus' time in the wilderness, but it was this time upon the cross as He waited for victory over death. Know this. Our patience for God is not unseen. As we wait for Him, we hold on to these promises even more so. And we are able to run to Him for comfort. Our memories may be able to become weapons towards God, but if we simply do not allow them to become that, they become our comfort as we wait patiently as those who have waited patiently before us have done. And as Christ himself waited patiently upon the cross for death that he might be able to declare victory once and for all. As the disciples waited for three days between Good Friday and Easter. Our deliverance is coming. It is in him that we must turn to for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Can we trust that no matter how isolated we are, that God's faithfulness endures more than our own fickle and fearful hearts? It would have been easy to celebrate the triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But it was not Jesus' triumphant entry that allows us to call Him Lord. It was not Jesus' triumphant entry that allows us to be saved today. It was not the hosannas ringing out amongst the crowds that make it so that Christians can proclaim the gospel to the people that they love. It was his cry of dereliction from the cross as he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We like to talk about encouraging things. I'm encouraged because the fact that Christ experienced that for me means that if I have put my faith in him, that I never, not once, will ever experience such abandonment. Because Christ has done that for me, I will never know such loneliness. What a friend we have in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the cross. I'm afraid to ask even that I would understand it and that I would know what you went through. I do not ask as a morbid curiosity. God, I ask. I ask because I get to know you. That our relationship's not far-fetched, that it's not imaginary, but that you are a real comfort. God, that you are present with the saints this morning. That you are present in the church that as we celebrate this morning your triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we're able to celebrate your lordship, your kingship, your rulership in the church that you have created. 
God, that your people would sing and that we would see you as Lord, Lord, that we would be able to come to you with faithful hearts, measured by the convictions that we have inside of us, growing in our faithfulness towards you through the encouragement of one another, blessed by your company and your people. God, I pray that you might be glorified this morning as we celebrate your dereliction cry. In Jesus' name I pray.